Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Well, I went to a capital city yesterday and I spoke on uh, the issue of women in ministry and I was just exhausted when I came home. And so I really just felt like doing nothing. So Faith and I watched two films. And strangely, they both sort of cohered with what we were doing. The first was about the British team, the first women's team to win the Whitbread race, the round-the-world sailing race. They didn't win it, but they came in second in, uh, what was it, 1990? They actually traveled through 1989. That they just kind of broke the barrier. You know, you think about that there had never been a group of women that had done that. And then uh, there was another film about Shakespeare, about after he had retired. I don't know the degree of accuracy here, but the depiction was Shakespeare had great hopes for his son to become a writer like himself. And in fact, had shown promise as a young child, but uh, had died. And he really didn't know how the boy had died. But he just thought, man, he was just brilliant because of the stuff that he was writing. And as he's home, you know, he's the, the theater, the Globe Theater in uh, London has burned down. And so he's not, he's not going to write anything else the rest of his life. And he's looking to his children. And of course, his great heartache is that his son has died. But it turns out, as the film unfolds, that actually it was his daughter. They were twins, and she was the one who had been composing the poems and the stories. The boy had just presented it like it was his own, and his daughter turned out to be uh, quite brilliant. In both instances there, uh, I think that the illustration was that here were women that had been oppressed and not appreciated. And that's sort of what I want to talk about is that in, the, in human history, you can talk about the wars and rumors of wars, but maybe one of the greatest struggles is more personal, closer to home, and that's between male and females, between uh, male oppression of women, actually, is the way that the Genesis will put it. I don't know why I was thinking of Freddie Fender's song, Wasted days and wasted night, you know. Um, Well, there's a lot of wasted lives, too. Maybe uh, many women denied a voice, denied rights, equal rights, denied their humanity. The simple verse in Genesis that is actually a depiction, one of the curses of the fall, what it means to have forfeited the image of God, is that man will oppressively rule over women. And women will masochistically succumb to this rule. Your desire for your husband will be for your husband, Genesis 3.16, and he will rule over you. That's not a prescription of God. That's a curse of the fall. And of course, the curse goes in many directions. It's a a curse, an alienation between God and human beings, between people and the earth and Uh, certainly between humans of all sorts. And it's this curse, though, that I think is specifically addressed in salvation. 
So that you could sum it all up. There's the curse and then the wedding feast of the Lamb. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. There's alienation, the curse, and there's reconciliation. And it's sort of ironic that the resolution of this curse seems to be slow in coming even in the church. The oppression can be seen and I think this is obviously part of the sex scandals in the church. I'm not saying that this is all of it, but in Catholic, Protestant, Christian churches, we're in the midst of a pervasive exposure of sexual abuse and scandal. And while sexual abuse, I mean, it's just here in the culture, the hashtag Me Too movement, uh, there's now the hashtag you know, church to movement, exposing scandal in the church. But it seems Christianity or the church is not addressing the problem, but in fact just the opposite, is aggravating the problem. And I'm not speaking out of hand here. This is Boss Chavigian, who is actually the grandson of Billy Graham. He was a prosecutor in Florida and he began to get all these sex crimes coming up and they were in churches. And so he started an organization specifically to deal with sex crimes in churches and gathered statistics, some of the first statistics about sexual abuse in Protestant, evangelical, conservative churches. And his point is, oh, it's no different in the church than it is in the culture. In fact, he says it's probably worse in church for several reasons. And so we're in an epidemic of abuse that's aggravating the problem uh, in the church, that it's not helping. And I think that part of it is that women's uh, subordination to men, this is what Javadjian points to, is sometimes aggravates the problem. But if you just take statistics, just uh, World Health Organization, and recognize, well, the statistics probably apply in the church and may in fact be worse in churches. That one in five women will be raped in their lifetime. One in four women and one in seven men will suffer some sort of abuse in the, uh, their relationship with their partner, a severe physical violence. One of the studies Javidjian points to is that 93% of people, sex offenders, describe themselves as religious. And he says these may be the most dangerous because other studies have shown that sexual abusers within faith communities actually have more victims and younger victims. A joint investigation, I'm not, the Southern Baptists just happen to be more organized than Christian churches and so they actually keep track of abusers. We've got abusers in our church and we've got people that are in fact in prison right now as a result of abuse in Christian churches. So if you're, I'm not picking on anybody, but it's the Southern Baptists who actually have come up with some statistics that 200 Southern Baptist pastors, youth pastors, deacons, were convicted or took plea deals for sex crimes over the past 20 years. And so just there, you're talking about 700 victim survivors. If you consider that most sex crimes, the vast majority of rapes, are ne they never lead to a felony conviction, it suggests astronomical levels of violence. And so women and girls in particular can be silenced 
I'm afraid in churches that teach a kind of hierarchical understanding, uh, the belief that God ordains male authority in the church and the home, and then they've been conditioned not to question men, and then to struggle, some women struggle to stand up to male misconduct. And when they do, they're sometimes dismissed. This was the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary President, Paige Patterson. It was reported to him, a young man's uh, youth minister's lewd comments to a teenage girl. She was 16, and she had reported it. And he said, oh, that's quite biblical. It's acceptable. And then went on, you know, they asked him, well, what about abuse in marriage? He says, well... You know, it just depends on the degree. His, his answers were so crude that Southern Baptist women started a petition of complaint and some 2,000 women signed this complaint. I think we're in the midst of an epidemic and whatever it is that's being taught is not addressing the problem. I think that first of all, the key point of Christian salvation is to deliver us from slavery to the kind of desire we're talking about. This is Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, Paul says, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It's interesting. He's, he almost reverses it. He's not saying that idolatry is peculiar. He's saying if you experience these things, you're an idolater. You're experiencing idolatrous desire. And so I think the ultimate sacrilege occurring in churches today is the sacrifice of women and children, clearly the outworking of the fall of human beings, that it's characteristic of idol worship human sacrifice characteristic of Moloch worship, and yet it's occurring in the church in the name of Christ. So authentic salvation is, in fact, aimed at curing this curse, and it's not happening. This curse, I think, especially as it relates to gender. And, you know, the depiction of salvation in Scripture, reconciliation, salvation, is often pictured, I think, I'll state it stronger, it's most often stated and most enduringly stated through the restoration of gendered relationships. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Israel is depicted as the bride and then the church is depicted as the bride and Christ is the groom. The depiction, you know, in Ephesians that the man shall leave his father and mother Paul is quoting Genesis. He shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. He says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about the Christ in the church. In other words, there is the original promise, and there is its fulfillment. So gender problems are at the center of the human problem. Whether you're, whatever you believe about the Bible, just read the newspaper. And salvation is depicted in this key motif as the completion of the promise of Genesis. There will be reconciliation. The two shall become one flesh. That is, there's a real world 
gendered reconciliation. We read this in uh, you know, Corinthians. Neither is woman without man. Here he's talking about the resolution of the problem. Nor man without woman. But they are from and through one another. You have a relationship uh, that depends. He says this is in and through God. In Galatians, Paul talks about, actually, I think he's summing up all of the motifs of Scripture uh, concerning the problem of sin and the resolution of redemption. There's basically three. The, there's Jew-Gentile, right? That the Jews are the chosen people. And then in Scripture, Christians become true Israel, true Jews. There's slave-free Certainly the exodus of the Jews from out of slavery, but that then becomes the metaphor that we are all enslaved to sin and desire and we're delivered from out of that slavery. And then there's male-female. And he says that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile in Christ. Now he's not saying, oh, that we're obliterating these categories. There's still people of ethnic origins. There's still social classes. But he says, this is no longer the way you do identity in church. That is, we still have Japanese or American, but that identity, you know, in Japan, as soon as somebody sees you, they say, oh, there's a gaijin. And it's a kind of slur. It's almost a racial slur, except everybody that's not Japanese is one of those nasty things, guy genes, almost subhuman. I get, you get to feel for what it was like among Jews to be a Gentile. We don't do identity that way. You know, if somebody comes in the church that's ethnically different, we don't say, oh, you're not one of us. Nor we do identity through social class, slave-free. You know, slaves were kind of subhuman. And a freed man was fully human. Nor do we do identity through male-female, through a, what am I describing? These oppositional differences. I'm not this, I'm that. And that's just our natural way of doing identity, I think, that we do the knowledge of good and evil. It's one thing pitted against another. And so Paul deliberately overturns this. This is actually a prayer. You've all heard the prayer that Jews prayed in the synagogue, right? God, I thank you that I'm not a slave. I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And I thank you most of all that I'm not a woman. And all of the women in the congregation would say, Thank you, God, for making me just as I am. Paul says that prayer is forbidden in the church because they've grown up praying that. That's the way they did identity. He's overturning that understanding. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. Reading from Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no notion of a set cultural order and you're defined by that order. There is no notion of a law of nature. And you're defined by that law of nature. It's all overturned because you're doing identity through Christ. Now there may be differences in the body of Christ. 
But there's the sense that the man inheres in the woman, the woman inheres in the man, that there's not identity through that difference, but there is identity through a unified understanding. And so Christ's followers are free. You know, when we talk about the law of sin and death, I think I've just described to you the law of sin and death. This is very violent, right? Oh, I'm not one of you. And that other category, whatever it might be, we treat in a violent manner. We oppress. That's undone. The law of sin and death. No Jew, no Gentile. We're a part of a reconstituted ethnic identity. Right? We're all true Israel. We're all true Jews. We're all children of God. An alternative socioeconomic order. No slave, nor free, no rich, no, you know. Those sorts of distinctions are undone. And through a reworked orientation to gender. No male, nor female. And Paul seems to be quoting here. He actually, in the three, he's using the phraseology as it comes from Genesis. That that is undone by being joined to Christ. But it's only this latter category that in fact has an enduring ontological meaning in the wedding feast of the Lamb, in the picture in uh, Ephesians. And so continued abuse, oppression, mistreatment of any class of people, of women in church in the name of Christ, I think we've missed the point of Christianity. If you can still oppress and hurt and do violence, it's an obscuring of the point of salvation. And so certainly gender problems at the, at the center of the human problem and salvation is a deliverance from. It says salvation is the, the, the completion, the undoing of the curse, the completion of the promise. The two shall become one. It's a fulfilled marriage relationship. I'm not saying that everybody has to be married. I'm just saying that's the motif that's being used. That we can understand this relationship, though, not in isolation. In other words, we don't read Scripture in isolation. We understand who God is through humans, and we understand what humans are. This is what Paul has talked about in the terms of the Trinity. The father and son relationship is like the male-female relationship. You misunderstand those Either one of those, you're going to misunderstand the other. That's precisely what's happened historically. That where there has been subordinationism in the Trinity, there has been peculiar treatment of women. That is, there is a misunderstanding of God, there's a misunderstanding of what it means to be human. So what is the human predicament? What is the resolution? Who is God? I think all of this is part of what it, we need to count in to understand, well, what is the role of women in the church? What is the role of men and women in the husband and wife relationship? You can't talk about, there's about five passages that talk specifically about that. If you focus on those passages without talking about the sweep of scripture, you're probably going to misunderstand what's being said. So I want to look just very briefly at some of the passages that might seem to teach a kind of oppressive situation. And remember, I could do the same thing with slavery, right? 
Let's say we were in the deep south in the 1800s and you're a preacher and a preacher in a Christian church, by the way. Uh, it's been argued that Christian church people in the south held more slaves than anyone. So it wouldn't have been unusual for a preacher to get up on a Sunday morning and argue for slavery, appealing to the Bible. And there would be many passages in Scripture that accommodate slavery, right? There's no passage we could turn to and that says slaves rebel or masters release your slaves. But does the New Testament teach slavery? God forbid. You know, that we could come away thinking that it does. After reading a book like Philemon, where Paul says to Philemon, I'm going to send you back Onesimus, your runaway slave, but understand he's like a son to me. And I'm ripping out my heart doing this. And I would you have you treat him like you would treat me, your father in the faith. Now Onesimus, yeah, he's your slave. But he's your brother in Christ. And he can't be both, I think, is the implication. Paul doesn't say that, but that's the implication. And so, too, I think with the passages surrounding, there is a kind of accommodation of the culture, just like there is an accommodation of slavery. Uh, there's accommodating the traditional role of women. That in some way, Paul's trying to negotiate that. And freedom of Christ, in Christ, that's the first thing we've got to get straight, is not simply a metaphor, but it's the, a real-world release. It's really release from oppression. It's really breaking the bonds of oppression. Where Christianity has spread, the tendency has been that slavery has ended. Now, we know the great failure is right here, right? And we could say the same thing about all sorts of oppression of people. All sorts of dehumanizing practices. Authoritarianism, slavery, subordinationism, oppression, alienation. In the world there will still be these classes. We understand there will be slave free, male, female. Oh, that's just going to continue. We're not going to undo racism in this country. But boy, we better undo it in the church. We're not going to undo a kind of chauvinism, male chauvinism in the culture. But we need to undo it in the church. Gender, class, ethnicity, they're dissolved as ways of doing identity. Paul in Corinthians says, treat these things as if not. If you're a slave, he says, don't worry about it. Treat it like you're not. If you're a, a married that's not definitive. It's as if you're not married. What he's saying is not, oh, go out and party on Friday night. He's saying that your life is then understood. Your identity is understood. Not through those social stations, that marriage station, but in Christ. And so we're given, once we get this deep grammatical shift, you know, this is even there in the way that Paul treats the Old Testament. He's going to read the Old Testament in such a way that it no longer is death dealing. That's what we're dealing with with the Pharisees, right? He was a Pharisee. And the way he read the Old Testament caused him to 
kill Christians. Maybe, right? He may have actually been involved in the death of Christians. When he says the letter of the law kills, he's not talking metaphorically. He's saying you read this thing wrong, you're going to oppress people. And if you get the new hermeneutic principle in Christ, you're going to read it correctly. And so Paul will use Old Testament persons. He's going to especially use Adam and Eve for many things. He'll use this as a kind of metaphor. For example, in Timothy, this is one of the most problem passages. If you want to find a misogynistic excuse to mistreat women, go to Timothy. If you really want to read Paul, you have to put it in this context. He says, you know, they're having trouble there in the church of Ephesus, that there is the temple of Diana. And the temple cult is female. And the religion is feminine. And the women run things. So remember, that's sort of what he's up against. And there's a misteaching, there's a, a heresy that's come into the church. And many of the men in the church have believed the heresy. And so in some way, we don't know quite what it is, but it may be connected with that. And he says that it was not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived. So women, okay, is he laying out a universal principle? Oh, all women are gullible and deceivable. That's their ontological state. That's not what he's saying. He's using a kind of ad hoc illustration to say, in this instance, women don't try to convince your husbands to follow these other people. You know, by the way, Paul doesn't do it, but you could also, you know, Adam in Genesis, he seems to change, or at least the idea that we have God's command to Adam and then Eve's depiction of what that is. Apparently, Adam didn't communicate very well. Well, maybe all men are liars. So uh, the point is, Paul is using an illustration there. Not that women are universally gullible or that men are universally liars Paul is not commanding a peculiar submission to women either I forbid women to teach men is he saying that all places and all time well he can't be because we know that he has women in his own that, that are teachers we know that Phoebe is one that he commends as a teacher. We know that Junia is an apostle, a woman apostle. We know that Priscilla and Aquila are part of his evangelistic team. And Priscilla, the woman, seems to come first. N.T. Wright says that the command be in full submission. In full submission to whom? And that's apparently unclear not in submission to men or husbands, are any of us to be in full submission to another human being? We just do whatever they say, whoever it is. That's just inherently unbiblical. But he's saying be in full submission to God. Women be in full submission to God just like the men. And so he's not laying down some sort of prescription here. In, in, we take into account the problem in Ephesus, and the way that Paul is guarding against the false teaching spreading, I think, is his command. He can talk about when believers are gathered, what they do, but he also wants to control this false teaching as it's spreading in the home. 
And so he may be saying that a wife should not teach or persuade or domineer or pressure her husband, especially in regard to this situation, in believing these false teachers. Eve, in Jewish thought, is Adam's wife, and she was deceived and fell into transgression. Eve is an example. He'll use Eve as an example in both Timothy and Corinthians. Of those who can be led astray. He said, look at Eve. She was led astray. Don't be led astray. This is no different than the men, though, who have fallen, he says in 1 Timothy 4.1, paying attention to, to deceitful spirits and doctrines, instructions of demons. And so just as the men need to be instructed to conduct themselves appropriately, as Timothy does in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, 1 Timothy 4.12, so to the women. And just as the men are to be instructed to avoid this other instruction and its a corrosive effect, so to the women. Now the force of the argument in 1 Timothy is that women in Ephesus, I think, are not to attempt to persuade their husbands uh, about this other teaching which is apparently being promoted. What I'm saying is, whatever we don't know quite what the situation is. But we know that this command probably is a command given here in this situation by men. They're being deceived by spirits that are false teachings from this temple. And the women, like the men, are to be models of what it is to conduct themselves properly. And so Paul will often use, certainly he uses the Old Testament with a universal import, but he will also use it as a kind of analogy, or he'll use it as part of an illustration in which he applies it to an, a specific situation. So if we understand, yes, that he had uh, Jesus and Paul and the early church, there were many women that were active in uh, leadership. It seems difficult to assume that he means this universally. Maybe one of the most perverse examples in scripture has to do with the word head and what that means. You know, men are the head, right? So we get to call all the shots. Faith is laughing because that's <laughs> probably we're all sort of cringing. Yeah, that really doesn't work, does it? Uh, um, and so whatever head means, and, and of course, what we, as we read it, what we realize, but what does the word mean? Does it mean I'm the authority? I get to call all the shots? Christ is the head. He is the source, and that's the idea here. That man is originally, and again he's appealing to uh, Genesis, that man is literally taken, you know, the woman is taken from man, but also is to be like Christ, the servant. The, the word is actually slave. That's what it means to be the head, the sustainer. Christ is the one who laid down his life for the church. So the idea here that head is the authority figure, well, uh, it, yeah, but that's a very different notion of authority than we usually have in the culture. You know, in some evangelical churches, they said, well, we need, what we need to prove that this is the case is to reintroduce the doctrine of subordinationism so that women will be subordinate to men like Christ is subordinate to the Father. Well, wait a minute, both of those are wrong. <laughs> because Christ is not subordinate. And so where these passages are cut off from their life situation and their 
the theory is informed in isolation from, I think, the broad sweep of Scripture, the theory of salvation. And these passages are deployed as proof text to kind of sustain what's already there in the culture. Because that's partly what we're dealing with. First culture, they were, in a sense, having to deal with it there, and we're still having to deal with similar problems. There is the idea of a complementarian form. If you would put it in racial terms, complementarianism is like separate but equal. Does that sound familiar? Oh, that was apartheid. And that was apartheid in the United States, even. It's racism. It's sexism in the way that it's formulated in that understanding. And I think this is the potential tragedy connected with reifying traditional roles that are captured, you know, in complementarianism. It misses the fact that the gospel is overturning fallen norms of what it means to be male and female. And the solution is not simply egalitarianism, but a realization of the full and actual meaning of salvation. I mean, I think that's really the, the tragedy here, that we've missed the whole thing. Uh, it's not simply an issue of egalitarianism versus complementarianism in isolation. That does not capture the fact that male-female relations cannot be understood apart from a right understanding of God, how gender reflects the human image, and how that image is fallen and restored then in Christ. It certainly pertains to the role of women in church, leadership, the relation of husbands and wives, but I think these issues then are, uh, are going to be understood only as the end point of the sweep of the story of reconciliation. And this then, the narrative focus of Scripture, is the way that we're going to be able to best comprehend this Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.